You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. Your guide on the side. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Ah, technology. Yes, I love technology. <laughs> Uh, a little Napoleon Dynamite there. Um, I love technology, and yet it's supposed to, you know, ideally increase some connectivity, right? These phones, all the technology should be helping us get closer with those we love. So in the Coach's Corner today, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about how we can enable technology in our lives without disabling the family. And if the goal is connectivity, connectivity is defined like this. It's the state or quality of being connected. The ability to link and to communicate with others. So it doesn't just mean we get a good Wi-Fi signal. That's great. That's probably the easy side of connectivity. The hard side is when you want to connect humans and make sure that we understand those around us and make sure that we listen we pay attention. And so uh, let me give you some tools that might help your family in the age of technology and connectivity to connect a little bit more effectively and how to manage your technology use. One of the first principles and rules is look, look at your technology as a magnifying lens, not the boogeyman, right? Not the evil, dangerous, you know, cancer, plague that is destroying our youth. Sure, the, it's impacting our kids a lot. But the, I, when I say it's a magnifying lens, technology really is your friend. It's not your enemy. Many would love to just sit there and blame technology for all of the problems in their lives, for the fact that their children are distant, for the fact that their kids don't get good grades, the fact that they're looking at stuff online that they shouldn't be seeing, for their overeating, because they sit in front of TV or their their obesity because they never exercise. But another way to look at technology is not just to blame it for everything, but maybe look at it as a magnifying lens. Meaning what happens with technology is it's going to magnify your natural tendencies anyway. If if you have a tendency to get a little lazy and not exercise, having technology and cable TV And Wi-Fi and Netflix is probably only going to magnify your inherent weakness. It does with me. If I love to just escape in a movie, then the technology is going to, you know, shine a light on that and grow grow it and, and embolden it. So it's not necessarily the cause of your problems, but it is magnifying and exposing your biggest weaknesses. If you have a self-esteem weakness and getting online on Facebook, Facebook may not just be driving and causing your self-esteem problems as you look at the neighbors who are all doing so much better than you. It's just magnifying the fact that you have kind of a natural inclination to have lower self-esteem. And that's how you use it to magnify the weakness. So make sure you're pointing that out and and focus as a family on and be real like Dr. Karen's was saying really look at yourself and ask what am i doing with my technology that's that's harming me 
And was the, is that not a problem if I didn't have the technology? Would I not naturally just find my way to waste that time anyway? So think of magnifying lens as as, as a, think of technology as a magnifying lens, not as the boogeyman. Another rule: get better, not busy. One of the things that um, we we spend a lot of time doing with our technology is we try to use it to just get more done. And the sad thing about getting more done is many times we spend all day doing things that we didn't need to do, that weren't even important to do. So instead of just using your your tools and your devices to get a lot more done, let's make sure we're actually improving, right? Let's make sure we're actually getting better. Make sure that you actually are changing and improving, not just being entertained. One of my children um, is on his phone constantly. And we sit there and we have discussions in our house. And out of nowhere, he pulls statistics. He pulls information. He pulls very relevant lessons and, and data that I had never known. And I ask him where he gets it. And he's like, oh, I saw that on YouTube. He actually uses YouTube to go learn. He knows so much, but he's learned it on YouTube. And, uh, you know, it used to be we would learn that in school. He knows so much. Uh, he can. He just sits there, yeah, well, the sun is this far from the, the earth and the earth is this far from. And he's just learned it on YouTube. It's not enough to just use the technology to keep us entertained and busy. Let's and even just chit-chatting and talking or finding the next great video that's moving and motivational. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But there's also a point that you, you ought to be able to not have to go to your phone to escape, but instead go now implement what you're learning. Like the question I always ask uh, the people and the couples I work with, what's one thing right now, if you did it right now, would positively impact your life? What's one thing? Can you think of one thing? Let's say you've even, you've even thought about doing it for years. What's, what's that one thing? Well, look, you already know. There's something you can go do right now. Why aren't we doing that? I don't know. I'm busy. Well, you're not busy on Netflix. So what we might want to do is when we have that one thing, if we don't know how to do it, we don't know how to do it effectively, use your technology to go get ideas on how to do the one thing that you know you need to go do. Use your technology to be an alarm to get you up earlier to go do that one thing. Make sense? The goal, getting better, not just staying busy. The goal of technology is to help advance us as humans, make us more human, more humane, not just more busy. Another rule, maximize the micro moments. Research from Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, author of Love uh, 2.0, Creating Happiness and Health in Moments of Connection. She describes what she calls the power of the micro connections or moments of connection that are so important to our communication. Fredrickson's research suggests that love of another is not some constant, all-encompassing emotion we feel throughout the day, but instead love is a small micro moment where we share a caring feeling or emotion. So when you think you love your family, loving of a family is not, that's, that's, That concept is not a constant concept because you're not constantly thinking about loving your family. That that love would be made up of micro moments throughout the day 
where in a loving way for a short period of time, you are connecting in and serving and taking care of your family. She argues it's the micro moments really that are the major drivers of health and can dramatically improve your use of technology. So why not use our technology to create more micro moments? Text your son, hey, you want to go on a walk today? My son's on campus here at BYU. I'm asking him, do you want to go on a walk today? Micro moment. Hey, how how did that test go? Micro moment. What did your friends say about whatever? Micro moment. So think of your life not just as big events. Well, we took our kids to Disneyland. That's so great. It might be better to have days full of micro moments, just little moments here and there where you express your love, you show your love, you care. And last but not least, we need to power up our will, our willpower, right? So the final area we need to improve if we want to make our technology our servant, not our master, is we're going to have to start to to have some more willpower. And the fastest way I've ever found to grow willpower is to have some rules, some won't power, some things we just won't do. So if you want your kids to have more and more willpower with their phones, they need more rules. It sounds horrible, but the rules allow them to exercise their will and turn off the phone or put the phones away, right? Turn off the TV. And the more they have to exercise turning off the TV when they don't want to, the willpower will grow. It's, you know... It's the ability to do something you don't want to do, but you do it because you have a higher need, a higher purpose. And willpower, it's not just something we just talk about. It's something we can actually do. You could take a, have a regular technology fast where you could say every Sunday from morning till 5 o'clock at night, no technology. You can have a phone time when all the phones are turned off and turned in. In our house, we don't want the phones up in our kids' rooms. You might have a book time when only books can be uh, in the house, where we're only reading books. We're not on our phones. You could have exercise times where maybe once in a while you go exercise as a family. You go play tennis as a family. You go do an activity as a family, and we put the phones away. Spend some time writing letters, visiting people, goal-setting, But the simple rule is let's spend more time exercising will. And when you do that, they'll learn to power up. So the four rules, very basically, to help us connect better without destroying the family. Think magnifying lens, not boogeyman. Get better, not busy. Maximize the micro moments and power up your will. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, in a little coach's corner for you here today, uh, as we were just talking with Dr. Rodney Stark about, you know, myth of religion being in decline not it's a myth folks uh religion's holding steady across the globe and um so i thought hey let's give you some ideas of why uh the benefits or real impact that religion has in your life okay try to give you eight different ideas here by the way this all comes from livescience.com LifeScience.com. The name of the article is Eight Ways Religion Impacts Your Life by Stephanie Pappas. Number one, religion helps you res- resist junk food. Does it? 
because I'm religious and I eat tons of junk food. But uh, in a study published in January of 2012 in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, researchers exposed students to references of God in tests and games and compared the students who saw references of pleasant but non-religious objects, and they found out that those that were religiously cued felt that they had uh, more control over their their eating habits, whether they'd eat treats or not. Those that actually saw religious cues were less inclined to go eat the junk food. Hmm, interesting, huh? Uh, religion, interestingly, it, it influences your life by maybe possibly, uh, maybe even helping you lose weight. According to a study presented at an American Heart Association meeting, in March of 2011, young adults who frequently attended religious activities um, are 50% more likely to uh, not to to 50% less likely to be obese by middle age. So it's you know if you're not eating junk food, it, this religion thing could be actually helping you lose some weight. It also puts a smile on your face. Uh, people uh, that are attending you know their churches regularly. According to a published study in the Journal of American Sociological Review, said that they're more happy, and not because of necessarily the denomination or the belief, but from the joys of being social, of being uh, and joining together with your fellowship of other people on a regular basis. So you know the ability to go to church and hang out with some of your friends and people that you are in your network at your church actually puts a smile on your face. They also found another benefit or impact of religion is it actually raises your self-esteem, you know, if, by the way, you live in the right place. Uh, Depending on where you live, religion may also make you feel better about yourself or by making you a part of a larger culture. Um, People who are religious have higher self-esteem and better psychological adjustment than people who aren't. Now, that shouldn't make you mad. Oh, I see. That's why I hate religion. But I, they're probably talking about places where there's a higher concentration of your, you know, religious belief. Maybe the Bible Belt, maybe kind of Intermountain area in the United States. If, as uh, Dr. Stark was talking about, uh, Central and South America, where many, many, many people are attending church every single week, up to sixty to seventy percent of people in South America are attending mass. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. Uh, interesting thing about religion is it soothes anxiety. Uh, If you're religious, thinking about God can help soothe the anxiety associated with making mistakes. In other words, believers can fall back on their faith to deal with setbacks gracefully, according to a 2010 study. Um, Interesting in the study, I guess they also studied atheists. Apparently the trick doesn't work for them. Um, Sad. Uh, Another uh, impact of religion, it protects against depressive symptoms. Depression recovery proceeds better against a backdrop of religion, according to one 1998 study published in the American Journal of Psychiatry. Older patients who were hospitalized for physical problems but also suffered from depression recovered better from their mental struggles if religion was an intrinsic part of their lives. That's according to the Journal of Clinical Psychology in 2010. A belief in a caring God improves the response to psychiatric treatment in depressed patients. Wow, that's powerful. In fact, it's directly tied to a specific belief that a supreme being, a supreme being cared for them. So the belief, you know, this isn't just 
a bunch of gobbledygook. It feels good to know that you have a supreme being, a heavenly father or, a, you know, a God that's watching over you. Another impact religion has, according to the LiveScience.com report, Eight Ways Religion Impacts Your Life, is that it motivates doctor visits. You're more likely to go to the doctor if you, uh, in fact, are attending a religion. Religion is linked to health in general, possibly because religious people have more social support, better coping skills, and a more positive self-image than those people who don't join faith-based communities. In a, in a 1998 study published in the Journal of Health, Education, and Behavior, um, regular churchgoers are more likely to get preventative care in the case of mammograms. About 75 percent of the 1,500 church members in the study got regular mammograms, compared with 60 percent of a sample of 510 women who were not church members. Anyway, interesting. Last but not least, it lowers your blood pressure. People who attend church often have lower blood pressure than those who don't go at all. That's weird because for me, it actually raises my blood pressure sometimes. Like when you got to teach or you got to speak or you've got to do something. According to a study out of Norway in 2011, those results um, were impressive given the fact that church going is relatively rare in Norway. But what they found is participants who went to church at least three times a month had blood pressures one to two points lower than non-attendees. Powerful. So it helps. It's helpful. And again, you don't have to be all up in everyone's face about your religion. But a couple of things we've learned from Dr. Rodney Stark, it's it's not declining. Religious attendance is holding pretty steady. Some, the younger generations, may not be attending as much, but it doesn't mean they're not believing. It just might mean they're sleeping in which I'm going to bet in the 70s was pretty common. I'm going to bet the 18 to 30-year-olds in the 70s and the 60s, even the 80s, were probably sleeping in as well. And overall, uh, many things it does do for us. If anything, man, what if it could just elevate our conversation, elevate our, you know, our acceptance of one another, our tolerance, our appreciation of fellow human beings? Huge, powerful. That's it. That's the first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Again, we can't do it without you, so go go look up our app, uh, the BYU Radio app, and uh, you can download all of our podcasts. Share them with the people you love, you care about. We're helping you try to see the good in the world. We'll take a break. We'll come back next hour. More ideas to help you uh, live healthier and happier right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Let's face it, whether we like it uh, or not, there there always seems to be one person in the office who we just can't seem to get along with. They're always the one cracking crude jokes, inappropriately speaking out, or just making those around them feel really uncomfortable. They may even be the type that seem to enjoy bullying others that are around them. We try ignoring them. We might try to be polite, sometimes even going as far as trying to befriend them at the cost of our own mental sanity. But just how should we really be dealing with these jerks uh, that we deal with? Well, Peter Economy, our next guest, is a best-selling author, business author. He's here with us this morning to help us address an article he wrote, How to Deal with the Jerks in the Office. And we appreciate you, Peter. Thank you so much for being with us today. 
Thank you, Matt. It's great to be with you today. You are uh, you're a busy man. You have more than eighty books um, <laughs> to your credit, and uh, you've been a ghostwriter. You work you write a lot for Ink Magazine as well. How did you get on the topic of dealing with jerks? Well, it's a it's a real common uh, topic. It's something we've all dealt with in in jobs. I, you know, I don't think there's a single person who probably hasn't had to deal with a jerk at work or you know in their personal lives as well. So it's just a real common thing. You uh, you quote a really interesting statistic that says 40 percent of employees say that working with an unpleasant person, I guess a jerk, lowers productivity. And uh, it's it's interesting. That's that's when you look at that, you know, economically, that's a that's a lot of money that jerks are costing us. Yeah, it's a tremendous hit on productivity. And and it's not just, you know, that aspect, which is huge. But but think about all the stress that that working with a jerk would cause too. And stress is, is another major, um, you know, destroyer of, of just productivity at work. And then also in your personal life, it can cause um, um, all sorts of uh, illnesses and, and uh, personal uh, health afflictions. Yeah, it's, um, it, it starts to take it out of us. Uh, I think it was the Gallup organization talked about um, engagement in our offices. And I guess only about 70% of employees were like were actively or seventy percent of employees were disengaged, not into their work environment. And I, I guess I'm assuming a lot of that, my or some of that, has to do with the stress they're feeling, kind of the lack of motivation, and then the bully, the jerk. Yeah, it's it's really a shocking statistic. And Gallup, you know, has, has surveyed this for several years, and it's it's pretty consistent over the years that. That there is that much, you know, seventy percent disengagement. Only about thirty percent of employees are actually engaged in their work, actually really enjoying where they work and and doing, a, you know, a really good job. So it's, it's it is shocking, and there's a lot of reasons for it. But certainly, office jerks and bullies aren't helping out. That's for sure. What do you think? I mean, maybe is that the behavior? Is that what happens when you are disengaged? When you are stressed at work? Are, are some people just jerks because they're stressed themselves? I'm sure there's some of that. I think some people are just, you know, that's just their personality. That's the way that they've they've grown up, and that's the way that they are. And um, you know, they when they get under stress, yeah, they're probably even worse. They, you know, I think when they get, when when a jerk gets stressed, <laughs> it, it, it's bad for everybody. It, it, it turns up the knob. You know, it, it goes to eleven. When, yeah, totally. When the jerk is under stress. <laughs> yeah, when the jerk's under stress, everyone's under stress. Is it? Uh, I, I guess we almost just kind of fall into survival mode, don't we? We we try either. I mean, I guess you could try to fight the jerk, but that seems to get ugly. More people seem to just kind of avoid the jerk. And um, and it also seems like it might be something that they – this is where they're going to go start talking with coworkers behind the back and kind of right. p- playing more of the passive-aggressive side. Wh- what do you – I mean, what's the impact of that? What What is the appropriate response as we start dealing with a jerk? Yeah, well, the, the thing is, is that, you know, we all work in, in teams of people. I, I think, you know, there's certainly been a big shift in, in many workplaces towards working in teams. And putting a large emphasis on teamwork, and you know the team has to be uh, has to get along. Everyone has to get along. Every, everybody has to work together. And when you've got people that that you can't work with, you know, comfortably, who are, who are creating discomfort, that that disrupts the team. And you can't just avoid. You can't just you know avoid that person, kind of sh- shun them, kind of push them out of the team because they need to be contributing too. 
and 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 so you've got to you've got to deal with the situation. You can't just I don't think you can just avoid it, especially in you know in a teamwork situation where you're all trying to work together to accomplish common goals. Right. And what if it's your boss? Right. What, what if it's somebody that? What if the jerk is yeah. somebody that's a a real important person to you? Yeah. Well, that's when you've got a real problem because you know I think um, you know speaking of statistics and stuff, but the Gallup organization found that the number one reason people you know quit their jobs is because they've got a bad boss. You know, their boss may be a jerk. Hmm. And that's the number one reason people will quit. And, and the statistics are showing that there's a, a large number of jobs that are coming you know, in the future, and there aren't going to be enough people to fill them. Uh, this next generation that's coming along, Generation Z, um, is a smaller generation. There's just not as many people in it. And I think that I saw something recently that there's going to be a, a surplus of about 300,000 jobs in the next five years or so. And yeah. that means that companies have to do everything they can to retain their employees to, you know, attract the best employees and retain them. Yeah. And if you've got a, if you've got a bad boss, you know, who's a jerk and they're, they're causing people to quit, that's not good for the company. No. Well, and imagine you can't retain people, your, your turnover, your overhead. I mean, it costs a lot of money to, to get somebody into the company, to get them up to speed and then to have them leave again because of a, a boss or a bully. What do you sense causes the jerk uh, in uh, in these people? What's their driver? What is their problem? Well, they get satisfaction from pushing people's buttons. Uh, you know, there's a there's this internal satisfaction they get for whatever reason. You know, without getting into all their history, you know how they were raised and all that. But um, they they are satisfied when when people. When they, when they push people's buttons and, and make them uncomfortable, make them suffer, make them uh, feel bad. And um, it's just some sort of internal thing that, that, that gives them satisfaction. Yeah, maybe a little more control, more power over sure. you. And especially if exactly. if you're the only one being bothered, Peter, like if, if I'm the only one that's really irked by this guy or he only does it to me, then I really have nowhere to turn. Well, yeah, and, and you've, you've, you've always got your boss to turn to. I mean, you've, right. you've got to, you know, you can certainly try to confront this person. You can take them on, and if that doesn't work, then you've got your boss, and hopefully your boss will, will step in and try to, to help, help the situation. It's interesting, too, because it seems like some of these scenarios could be actually created by a boss where they, and not meaning to, but they use competitive systems so there's a lot of competition on these teams sometimes, yeah. and that that in and of itself could be, you know, problematic. Yeah, well, you know, I've I've worked in companies myself, you know, in the past where a, a boss will tolerate um, someone who's a real jerk. Mm-hmm. I mean, because because they perform well. Yeah, they're a top they're performer. The performer on the team, they're a top performer, and they and they actually sort of look the other way because they don't want to let this person go. They don't want to, you know, get them mad. And have them leave because um, because they confront them. So they just let them keep doing what they're doing, um, and then and uh, as the rest of the team goes away or, or checks out, like you said, they become disengaged. How do we how do we determine if it's a big enough problem for us that we need to address it? Well, certainly on a personal level, if, if you're feeling uncomfortable, if you can't focus on your job 100 percent because of this jerk. And that's that's big enough. That's a big enough problem um, to to de- to you know confront and and deal with. Um, if and then if others are feeling the same way, I mean, if you're talking to your friends there at work and they're saying the same thing, um, then you've got a really big problem. 
Mm. But even if it's just yourself and you're feeling uncomfortable, that's something that you, you should deal with. I mean, if I'm thinking about it all the time, if I if I'm dreading going to work as I pull in and I see his car and I'm like, ah, oh, geez, uh, he's here. I guess exactly. if it's in my mind, I'm, I'm going to act it out one way or another. I probably need to get it out of me by bringing it up instead of just acting it out passively exactly. or aggressively. That's what I would recommend. Yeah, I, I, I would definitely recommend that. Let's uh, let's take a break. We're speaking with Peter Economy. He's a, an author and a writer. He has written extensively for Inc.com. You can go uh, find him under Leadership Guy, but you can also look him up at PeterEconomy.com. By the way, Peter, killer name, especially for Inc. Magazine. That's pretty awesome. We'll take a break, have more with uh, Peter Economy, and uh, figure out exactly how we confront the jerks in our lives. It's not easy, is it, folks? It's just life, part of life. We'll take a break, come back, helping you learn how to live healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. sincere form of flattery, so I thank you. Identity theft is not a joke, Jim. Millions of families suffer every year. Michael! Oh, that's funny. Michael! There you go. Oh, I love that. Dwight Schrute. A pretty great example of the jerk in the office. And uh, one way that Jim, his counterpart, is trying to deal with him is just mimic him. Dress like him. That's why Dwight's all ticked off about identity theft. Joining us on the phone is Peter Economy. Peter is a best-selling business author, ghostwriter, development, developmental editor, and publishing consultant with more than 80 books to his credit. He writes columns on leadership and management for Inc.com. He's called The Leadership Guy and also has served as associate editor for Leader to Leader magazine since 2001. Peter, we appreciate you being here. Thanks for teaching us about how to deal with the Dwights in our lives. Uh, my pleasure, Matt. So if if I decide I need to confront somebody um, because they're being a Dwight, they're being a jerk consistently to me, they're bothering me, how, how do I prepare? What do I do to get ready to have this conversation? Well, I, th- I think you get the facts. You, you, you really sit down and assess how is this person impacting you personally? You know, what, are the, what are the feelings you're feeling? What is it that they're doing that is... is you know, causing these these um, buttons to be pushed within you, and and just write it down because uh, you want to kind of prepare a script um, to deal with this person. You're going to want to sit down with them and talk to them. So pre- to prepare, you just want to do a little bit of research. What are they doing? What's the behavior that's bugging you, and how is it affecting you and your your ability to do your work, to do your job? The script idea is, I think it's a really important idea. It gives me a chance. I know how they'll respond. I've seen them respond a hundred times to other people. And so by thinking it out, I guess it gives me it gives me the next thing to say, the next thing to do. I'm wondering if that would alleviate some of my anxiety about addressing it. Well, definitely. Just just you know, getting getting taking the time to write it out to to really think about what what's happening within you. Um, what are the behaviors that are bothering you, and, and and how is it affecting your work? 
uh, that definitely will reduce your own anxiety just going through that process before you even talk to this, this person that's, that's the jerk at the office. And having the facts, I think, too, is powerful because a lot of times we don't make our decisions based on facts. We make it kind of on based on an interpretation or a conclusion we've made. But when it, a lot of times I've noticed, as I do, I do a lot of mediation uh, work and helping couples talk. I notice when the fight starts, we start eventually when it's not working anymore, we start looking for the facts of the argument. So, 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 what do you mean? Right. I didn't say that. I said this, and I didn't mean that. So, so having the facts, I guess, makes sure I can go back to something that's on solid ground. Yeah, and and so much of this is you know is triggered by emotion. I mean. Uh, you know, when when they when these jerks in our office are pushing our our buttons, these are mostly emotional buttons. They're they're you know triggering strong emotions within us. And if you can go back to the facts, you know, to the rational facts, and have those as sort of the bedrock of your your approach here, um, that'll help you get past those emotions hmm. that, that may be clouding clouding your mind a bit. Yeah, I I, I guess that is the key too. Is you got to go with your emotion in check because. If not, you're going to look like a loose cannon, and it seems like the bully is going to love that. Yeah, that'll make them feel even more, you know, excited and you know, it's like, wow, I'm really doing it. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah, you know? you're playing my game my way. I'll, I, then they'll exactly. have a huge advantage. What are, do you have any words or phrases, things you we should maybe avoid saying, things we should watch out for? Well, I, I don't think you want to put, um, you know, you don't want to inflame the situation by by putting blame on them, you know, by, by saying, you know, you're such a jerk and, and, and call, you know, calling them names, like, so let's say name calling. We shouldn't be doing name calling. Mm-hmm. You should just be talking in rational terms, you know, um, what you do when you um, do this, it, it causes me to feel this way. And when I feel this way, I can't focus on my work and, and, and I can't be productive in my job. And it's, it's, it's causing problems with my ability to do my work. Because so, it could just I be. Avoid, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say I'd avoid name calling and, yeah. and and like you said, playing at their level. It's um, sometimes this could just be. I mean, they could be a jerk overtly taking you on, but sometimes it could be just subtle stuff. You know, moving the stapler, <laughs> playing music. Right. It, it could just be. It could be things you've asked them to do. Hey, can you always return my stapler when you borrow it? Sure, sure, sure. Right. Um, and, and <laughs> what what I wonder too is that we might be running into somebody that's that's not just a jerk necessarily. Some people it seems like are just clueless. And yeah, I guess we want to make exactly. sure we differentiate. Right? Is this are they just clueless? Do they do this to everybody, or is it is there something about my relationship with them? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point um, because a lot of times the people who are jerks who we consider jerks in the office really don't even know what they're what they're doing that causes people to to react in that way. They don't realize they're being jerks. Yeah, um, and, and you're actually do you know doing them a favor by pointing these things out. Napoleon uh, Bonaparte had a quote that said, "Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by incompetence." <laughs> and it, don't you think it seems yeah. like a lot of a lot of the people around us, like they might be emotionally challenged, they might be socially challenged, and yet it doesn't mean they they're not a brilliant you know engineer or they're not a brilliant contributor sure. on a team. They just don't know how to be on a team. Exactly, and and you're actually helping them by by pointing out 
their behaviors that are causing problems in the office. I mean, they may not, like you said, they may be clueless. They may not be aware. And, and it's to their benefit to, to be, you know, become aware of these things. You're doing them a favor. Yeah, you, re- no, you really are. And I guess because it would be easier to maybe not have the conversation and just suck it up, so to speak. But you're not helping right. them and you're not alleviating your stress either. Exactly. Yeah, I think the best thing is is to take it on, you know, to to deal with it, not to ignore it. And um, let's say I do that. I, I guess if it doesn't go well, I mean, is this something I should try to do privately? I mean, I personally would probably want to do it privately, but I also would want to witness. <laughs> so um, I don't know how you get the best of both worlds there. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I would agree that I think the first conversation is private. I mean, you don't want to do this publicly. You don't want to call them out in front of a bunch of people and embarrass them. Again, especially if it's something, you know, an innocent behavior that they're not really aware of that they're that's causing problems. Um, but, yeah, I'd say privately the initial conversation to just be like in an office or maybe outside the building. Let's go for a walk. Let's talk. Um, and I don't know about the witness part of it, but I'd certainly have a private conversation initially. And if it went well, great. Um, problem solved. If it doesn't go well, then I think that's when you have to, you know, kind of escalate things. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think as anybody that's listening could be asking themselves, boy, I wonder if I'm perceived as a jerk. Uh, it, 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 what, what would be some signs that you are a jerk? For you to detect, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Coming at it yeah. from the personal level, am I a jerk here? Yeah. Well, certainly when people start avoiding you, uh, that's probably sign number one. Um, you know, you walk into the office and everybody runs away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They run the other direction. That's certainly a strong sign that there's a problem. And, you know, people who may have treated, you know, you you had good relationships with initially at work and they, they, they st- these relationships start falling apart for whatever reason. That may be a sign that something within you is, is, is causing problems, especially when it's more than just one person. If, uh, if, if more than one person is having problems with you and is starting to avoid you, mm. that kind of thing. It really reminds me of playground behavior, you know, mm-hmm. where there's the bully and then there's the ones that kind of suck up to the bully and then they become part of the gang with the bully. And they're usually right. not as mean, but they have to play up to the bully. And uh, But it also is interesting, um, if somebody's as, as aggressive as a bully is, then maybe you taking them on, or I mean, that sounds harsh, but you addressing it with some strength might be actually perceived as positive. They might Definitely. respect that. Um, exactly. They also might that, that's beat you down, but... <laughs> No, I, I think I, you're you're exactly right. Um, you know, when you come at it with strength within yourself, that that's something that's the, that that person's going to respect, and 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 it may be enough to help them change their behavior. Yeah, I guess in the end, uh, every case is so, is so different and so personal. Sure. Um, when and you see it with Ink Magazine and all the writing that you do is it's it's really a lot a lot of our problems i mean a lot of our success and problems in business it's about people isn't it it's about your ability oh, yeah. to be connected with people business is all about people it's all about relationships that you build no matter what kind of job you have whether it's a sales job you know if you're in accounting um you're a manager it's all about people and and your relationships and your ability to communicate um well with other people and get along with people and work together with other people it's, you know, business is people. That's right. You're right. 
It's uh, it's all about the people, isn't it, Peter? Well, Peter, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work there at Inc. Magazine. And uh, I suggest everybody go to your website, PeterEconomy.com. PeterEconomy.com. Wonderful uh, posts there. You've done a lot of writing, Peter. You keep up the great work. Thanks so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. You bet. PeterEconomy.com. You can get everything. Five gold medal habits for success in your career. Six habits for hyper success in business. Wonderful resource if you're a manager as well. It'll probably give you some good stuff to talk about in your meetings. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, do a quick little coach's corner. Plus, we're going to figure out uh, earlier, Terry was talking about something that they're, that they're now, I guess, having at the pumps, at the gas pump, that you won't believe. There's this new feature. But will we use it? Stick with us. We'll find out what he's talking about. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's tough uh, to be... uh, Dealing with somebody that's really difficult for you every day, day in, day out. But one of the little pieces of advice I have, um, you know, it takes two to tango. And if you know somebody's pretty aggressive or reactive, I mean, short of you being physically abused by this person, you could have a little fun. Right. So if they if they always move your stapler. For fun. You know, hide the stapler or put it in the jello as they did with the white or tie a big rope around your stapler as a joke. Like I would tie a huge mooring line rope to my stapler and put the guy's name on it. This was for you, Jim, so my stapler doesn't leave my desk. Put it in jello. Then that'd be great. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But some people are just strange, uh, and uh, I wanted to tell this story, and we've now got Terry here. Um, so, Terry, get ready to talk to us about what's going on at the pump. But first, here's the story. A woman who drove her husband's body on a days-long traveling wake in Alaska has not been accused of breaking any laws. Mm. Right? So a woman took her husband that had passed away, 78-year-old man had died of natural causes. She put him in an aluminum transport casket. And then police say the woman stopped at canneries for ice in Alaska to put in the truck bed during the rolling wake. The I'm man... not dead. Think I'll go for a walk. <laughs> I feel happy. I feel happy. They shut the door on him. The man had died of natural causes. The mortuary took custody of the body after authorities were called. Police say hopefully the woman won't take her husband back out on the road, but that he wasn't aware of any laws that she had broken. Hmm. So apparently it's not illegal. I guess once your spouse has been, you know, you know, uh, what do we call it? Your friend here is only mostly dead. (laughs) Once they've been... Once the doctors called it, yeah, and I guess the paperwork's been filled out. You can take them in the then the body's station re- wagon released and, to the family, as they call it. Yeah, and, and yeah. just hit the road. Off you go on a week. Keep him on ice. Now, sure, she can do it legally, but uh, if she brought the guy to work, 
Yeah. There's places where you don't People want to. People are going to be a little frustrated. Yeah, you don't need to do a weekend at Bernie's Yeah. Situation. Oh, I thought he died. No, he's we, we're just having a little wake now. Yeah. That's kind of weird. Um, okay, now you have an update so for I, us. So st- I stopped to get gas this morning. Okay. Noticed I was out. My car started chiming at as like it does. like four in the morning. Yeah, so I'm standing there and I'm looking at the pump, you know, yeah. like you do. Uh-huh. And I noticed to the side of it, and I'm going to show you this photograph here, there is a box of plastic gloves. Really? Germ-free pumping. On the box, it says, fuel nozzles are one of the most widely used public service surfaces during our daily commute. Ah. Right? So yeah. there are they're, they're surface, lots of people grab them, possibility of germs, contaminants and stuff. You grab it, fill up your car, just get in the car and go. People eat in their cars. Yeah. Are, Boy. So you pull up to pump your gas. Are you going to stop, pull out the plastic gloves, put them on? And then uh, pump your gas. Well, I don't ever think of the gas hose and nozzle as a health issue, except for the fact that there's gasoline in it. Yeah. But, I mean, you think about it. Yeah. People are I touching it all day long. Well, sure. But you know what? You, you probably have more germs on your phone. I might use the glove to put over my phone. Yeah, those right. gloves would have multiple applications. If you want to take a little gas to go, yeah. Okay, yeah, fill yeah. up a pick glove, up some dog, tie off about 20 of those. Yeah, so, but it seems like, is that is that necessary, do you think? No, that's weird. But you know who I could see? I could see, like, my wife might love that. Have you seen that before? Anywhere? No, never seen that. It's just, they're, they're just bolted to the side of all of the gas pumps at the station I stopped This is at. what's weird about society. When I was a kid, people would pump gas and fix your car without gloves. Mm-hmm. Now I see a lot of people working on your car with gloves. Well, yeah. You know, which was weird. I mean, it makes it smart, right? Yeah. Stay clean. Um, well, that and you're, as you're, you know, working on different parts, you could bump your hand and yeah. cut your hand. So they so, wouldn't do that. But they didn't used to do that. No. They just used to man up and just go in there and touch take care that of business. scalding yeah. hot radiator cap. Right. If the dead body you're transporting during mm-hmm. the gas break, you know, if That's he- a great point. That opens up, you could close that up again. What they ought to have is ice and gloves in case you are going to have a moving wake. So I just thought this was very weird. odd. I've looking never at that, seen like, that. Who's going to glove up to you know pump their gas? It seems like it you're, makes... you have a bigger risk when you hit the restroom. Yeah, they ought to just have. They always have the hand sanitizer. Yeah, that nobody uses. Right. I think it made more sense to put the hand sanitizer in your car. Sure. And then just you know, if you're that concerned about it, sanitize See, after you pump up. That's one thing we you get on the Matt Townsend show. We bring you the latest, greatest sanitary devices to make sure that as you pump your gas, you don't get an infection. Because we care. We'll take a break. Hour number three. Up next, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We've been talking with uh, Dr. Madeline Sherrick about her book, um, Superheroes Club, and her goal really is to just get this dialogue started with our children there, there really are a lot of things I, th- I think that we could be doing to influence our children to be maybe more tolerant, more open, uh, less judgmental. We, we have a lot of issues that um, that are out there. It doesn't mean that we need to, you know, ins- you know, motivate them to go be 
a great you know politician or get engaged in every movement and opportunity out there. But today the kids are out. They're out doing a little march or a little protest, not a protest, but really some are just doing it. My son didn't even know everything that had gone on in Florida, but he realized that they're, they need support. Kids need support. And so one of the things that I would recommend, I guess, to all of us is to see what we can do while we're talking with our children about what's going on in the world to see if we can't teach our children to be a little more tolerant and a, and a lot more of uh, of peacemakers not where you just have to stick your head in the sand and 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 you know accept peace but promote peace find other ways to be more inclusive so some tools that uh, i would suggest that we all kind of look at to help our kids uh, number 1 broaden our pool of understanding a lot of us we talked about it in the first hour just the simple power of our language and having um, – because I'm bilingual and, under, and and fluent in Spanish, it, it changes your brain. It changes how I relate to people from other cultures simply because I appreciate deeply um, the Spanish language and, and that culture. It doesn't mean I understand it. It doesn't mean I get it. It doesn't mean I am – uh, would just automatically be brought into the culture. But it does mean because I've studied it and lived abroad, I've been able to to have a different point of view. And there are a lot of different points of view out there. Uh, our earlier guest was talking about the fact that if we just um, could make sure that we in Israel, that Hebrew and Arabic were both um, languages that were being taught, wouldn't that in and of itself, improve our ability to understand each other and communicate to find real solutions. So broaden our pool of understanding. Give your children more opportunities. Seek out more opportunities of of diversity in every in every single way, cultural uh, diversity, religious diversity, um, ethnic diversity. Gather data from other people. Give your child the opportunity to experience children with, with other special needs or um, other issues so that they can broaden their horizon. There is a reason this younger generation is much more open-minded than even the generation before it, and some of that is simply um, they're experiencing it more. Another idea that might help us be more tolerant and raise more tolerant kids is let's all avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or sensitive. A lot of us oversimplify everything. We make it good or bad, right or wrong, black or white, up or down, guns or no. And the reality is, as we've talked about on the show so many times, it's much more complicated than just black or white. Also, let's be careful that we don't sensationalize everything. Everything that glitters is not gold, folks. And we probably need to not only just teach our kids that, but make sure that we're not paying, um, we're not, we're not getting too sucked in to all the sensational headlines and the, uh, you know, the latest, most sensational thing of the day. Watch out for that. Another goal is is make sure that just because you're sensitive to an issue doesn't mean um, I have to be sensitive to it. We can be too sensitive to certain things, and um, sometimes that, I think, creates an, an experience where none of us uh, can feel safe doing anything anymore because everybody's sensitive to something. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. 
I can worry about your sensitivities. I can also make sure that I don't become so sensitive that I'm incapable of seeing the world from another frame of view. Uh, avoid the online pile-on is the thing I try to teach my kids. If if they see stuff going on on social media, don't jump in. Don't just pile on. Don't just be another voice against. First think it through. Understand your position and make a really effective case for your position. Uh, I had somebody talking the other day that I, I heard them talking about the fact that um, their wife – does kind of get involved in a lot of social media, you know, issues where she's sensitive to certain things. But what she does is she goes slowly about um, writing her position. And she writes it in such a way that it actually is additive to the conversation. It's not a pile on, it's additive. And um, she makes a case with data and support, and it actually elevates the conversation. So if you want to be involved in the social media, I teach my kids, then be involved, but be additive. Be bringing something to the equation. Don't just pile on. Don't just jump in. Don't just spew negative stereotypes or prejudice. Jump in and actually bring some light to the discussion. Bring something new that others wouldn't think about, and um, that way your conversation and your piece of the conversation is, is helpful. Another powerful thing I think that helps intolerance is um, let our values and our principles actually appear in our talk. So if you want your children to be tolerant, then you've got to be talking about tolerance and you've got to be talking about your principles, whether it's fairness, whether it's decency, respect. But if you believe in those things, if you believe in loving your neighbors, then Let's make it be more than just a concept. Let's make it become part of our dialogue and description. I can't tell you how many times with uh, people as I'm as I'm working with couples, for example, that have conflict. They their how they manage the conflict is in no way tied to their values, to the principles that they espouse. Over and over, they people come in and tell me how, you know, they were married in a church, they were married in a temple, they were married in a synagogue, and yet their church, their synagogue, and their temple never seem to be appear when they're actually in their conflict. If we want people to believe what we say, then let's see if we couldn't integrate more of our values into and our principles into how we talk. So it, it's going to be hard for your kids to know what to stand for if they don't know what the values are and the principles are. So talk more about it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And that work that by uh, Dr. Madeline Sherrick in her book, um, Superheroes Club, it's, it's about talking about your principles and sharing your principles and then telling your kids, this is what we believe in. This is why we do what we do. Um, and what's powerful about this is once you've laid down those principles, then every single issue that comes up, whether it's shootings in Florida or immigration issues or, um, you know, the latest political discovery or why mom or dad's a Republican or a Democrat, each one of those conversations could come down to our principles, not our positions on any of those issues. There's got to be principles at play here. And how powerful would it be to hand down to your children 
the idea that principles are alive in our family, guys. Principles govern how we react to each other, how we interact with each other. And uh, then all of a sudden, you've, you've probably handed down something that will be invaluable and um, hopeful to your kids. Last but not least, if you want to create tolerance with your conversations with your children, build bridges that um, that you can build on. Defer to uh, to go face to face, look eye to eye, and and figure out where can we start to build a bridge on certain issues. You don't need to finalize the bridge, but if you can see a place where we could take two different shores uh, on different sides of a river and start to build a bridge between the two, let's start doing that. If you can see a way that you can actually create a bridge between uh, immigration issues by appreciating immigrants and by supporting security, if you find a place where that can happen, start building the bridge there. We need more people to be building bridges And we also need, I think, each and every one of us to be willing to cross some of those bridges and and be willing to go to both sides and understand both sides of the issue. Many times we just – we're staring across the river at each other with a completely different view on the other side of the river. But because we've never walked on the other side of the river, we don't ever understand it. And instead of just running to one side of the river or the other side of the river, we need people that can understand both sides of the issues to communicate what they know. I, I see it all the time with uh, LGBT issues where some people don't understand it. And instead of being frustrated or angry that some people don't understand the LGBT issue or others that just do not understand um, the whatever, the Christian view of LGBT issues, um, we, we don't – I don't need the polarization there. What I need is somebody that is a Christian LGBT uh, person that can talk both sides of the issue and help us all start to bridge some of this, understand some of this. That's why there's power when we've had these experiences in our lives with whatever the issue, with whether it's religious freedom issues, whether it's LGBT rights. When we can converge and bring these together, there's power in how we can solve that. And instead of always polarizing everything, there is power if we could actually take the the same issue and not polarize it but bring us into one conversation with each other that's informed. If you've been able to bridge things before, please help the rest of us bridge them now. That's how you create tolerance. Again, let your values do the talking. Avoid the online pile-on. Avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or sensitive and broaden your pool of understanding. And if you have built a bridge, if you understand where there are bridges that can be built between differing opinions, will you please start building those bridges? It's just another thing that we all need as humans here on this earth. Powerful stuff, folks. Uh, Tolerance. It's really what life is about, I think, is understanding that we are all in this same journey together, and we're all just trying to get through it with... uh, with more love, hopefully. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Levinson makes a great point that be careful in in being really quick to regulate, especially letting the government regulate, because, you know, when you let the camel's nose in under the tent, it's coming in. Um, and remember that regardless of your uh, politic, you, you may – you got to be careful because – Anybody could put their person in there and and start doing what they need to do. 
if everyone were just neutral and out for the best interest of the whole country, that would be great. But sometimes politics gets in the way and uh, decisions are made by people that don't necessarily understand the whole depth of the issue. So what do you do? Do you? I guess you you got you can just complain about it. You can just whine about your lack of freedom. Or there are some other things that you might do, and I wanted to throw some of these other ideas out there so that maybe you could become a change agent instead of just a you know a pain in the neck um, and a complainer. One thing we could all do is try to understand the issue better. So instead of complaining about what's going on with social media, um, we could start actually using that same energy to understand the deeper pain behind the issue, identify what's really going on. Uh, understand it, research it. Don't just research it from your favorite three sites that you always go to. Dig deeper, dig wider, and try to understand the issue at a completely different level. And then see what that does to you. By gathering more and more information, do you do you see it as a bigger problem or do you see it as you know a, a, a more balanced solution? Maybe one of the reasons why Dr. Levinson is saying hold back on allowing government to intervene is – because in all of his research, he's seen a lot of history where government intervention hasn't made it better. Uh, another way we can handle our complaints or our fears or our insecurities is reframe the issue. So instead of just complaining about the problem uh, that others might be creating for you or this Internet or the whatever social media might complain for you, reframe the issue um, and, and alter the way that you actually see the problem. Sometimes the biggest problem we face is actually how we're seeing the problem. Um, reframe the 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 issue as maybe not necessarily a social media issue, but reframe it as Dr. Levinson did as a as a you know First Amendment rights issue. That so now you're going to allow the government to start saying who and what social media companies can exist and and who can't exist. Be careful uh, how you see it. Also, be careful how you frame it. Change it. Instead of complaining and hoping for change, you could actually start working immediately to create the change that you seek. Go start implementing the changes that you've learned about, the changes. Go fight for it. Go run for office. Go become an advocate for the issue and fight and and start becoming a leader in the issue so you can at least um, influence it. Uh, There's nothing worse than the pains of having a problem that you can't influence, right? So improve your influence. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, like I'm going to be able to change it. Well, no, like, yeah, you could. I mean, there's many examples in our world where one person made a change, decided to take on an issue, and uh, many a Nobel Peace Prize has been won by these people. Many a a movement has started by just the one person. But they didn't do it willy-nilly. They didn't do it uninformed. They were informed. They saw the need and they took on the calling to go be the change agent and become the change. Or last but not least, just accept what it is. Accept it. You know, Accept this is how life works and figure out how you're going to live your life in relation to it. Uh, like manage your own data. Make sure you're not overextending. Get off social media sites that you don't need to be on. Go in and change all of your passcodes, passwords, and other information Um, minimize what you put online, maximize uh, the messaging you want to be out there. I mean, there's a lot of things you still can do by just accepting the way this is the way the system goes and and, uh, living that system the way 
you can live it, right? So you you got a few choices. Instead of just complaining, you can also understand it, reframe it, change it, or ex- or accept it, and become the change that this uh, world and country needs. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We have a great guest in studio with us today. Joel C. Peterson joins us. And uh, Joel is a, um, he's, how do we put this? He's an author, but author may very well be the least of his uh, of his accolades. He's a graduate uh, from the School of Business at Stanford University. He's also uh, the chairman of the board of over, uh, of, uh, of, by the way, let me name 10 companies he's been chairman of the board of, of overseers at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He's the founding partner and chairman of Peterson Partners, a Salt Lake-based investment management firm. He was the chief executive officer of Trammell Crow Company and uh, currently is the chairman of the board at JetBlue. More importantly, maybe for us today, he's the author of the book, The Ten Laws of Trust. Building the bonds that make a business great. Joel, thanks for being here with us today. Nice to be with you, Matt. You have a great history also on the board at Franklin Covey Company. I've been on the board at Franklin Covey for 25 years. That's a long, that's a long road. Yeah. And of success. Yeah. So talk to us about your book, um, Building the Bond that Make Great Business Great. That's trust, right? So here we have two presidential candidates right now that are struggling deeply in trust. Yeah, they're both deeply distrusted. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think it's 46% of the population for both of them think they are less trustworthy than most politicians. Wow. And politicians are the least trusted of any. It used to be used car salesmen. Yeah, it did. And then attorneys and whatever. Now it's politicians are the politicians, least trusted Politicians, hey, they won. Yeah. They're the head <laughs> yeah. of the pack. So, so as a businessman that's uh, succeeded in many of these, in many areas, Talk about uh, the impact of trust. How, by the way, is trust earned? Is trust given? How does how does one acquire trust? And what would you what would you advise these two candidates to do? Well, it's both earned and given, but it can actually be built within an organization. That's the whole reason that I wrote the book hmm. is because I think you can build organizations that are high trust enterprises, and you do that in a specific way. You build guardrails that keep you on the road yeah. to building high trust. And, and so those are the guardrails are like uh, rules? Are they What are they? Patterns? The, protocols? These are what I call the 10 laws of trust. There you go. And uh, so I, I think if you kind of read the book and look at these things, you say, wow, these these actually would build a high trust organization if people followed them. And it's I guess part of the key to this is you got to want to, right? You got to this isn't something that just accidentally happens. You have to intentionally say we are going to be a company of trust. Yeah, and you have to work hard at it. And it's built up a conversation at a time yeah. and can be destroyed with a single act. Oh. So it it's very hard to build. It's one, kind of one way sticky. Yeah. You know? That's a great way to put it. Yeah. It's one way sticky. Talk about some of those guardrails, because um, I and I've seen it. I've seen it at Franklin Covey, and I've seen and uh, Stephen M. R. Covey, who wrote the foreword for your book. He's been on the show as well, talking about the speed of trust and the efficiency trust brings. Um, but again, it's it's something that you have to make intentional. 
Yeah, you have to care a lot about it. And uh, I think it starts with your own personal integrity. You know, it's hard to trust somebody who doesn't have personal integrity, where they compartmentalize their lives or where they spin things and they live their life one way privately and another way publicly. It's really hard to build trust in that uh, kind of a circumstance. And what what does trust afford us? What does it give us? Well, it allows for innovation. Uh, collaboration. People collaborate in a kind of a seamless way. If you trust somebody, hmm. you don't have you're not you're not checking up all the time. You're yeah. not wary. You don't have double riveted legal agreements. Right. Things go faster, as Stephen uh, will say. Yeah. There's a speed uh, to smart trust, and uh, so a lot of things happen. And you need that efficiency. It seems like to make it in this market. It's because your competitors can can uh, copy your systems. They can steal your people away, but they, I guess they can't copy your culture of trust. It's that if you've earned it, that's a competitive advantage. Exactly, and I'm sure Stephen quoted uh, Peter Drucker yeah. saying that uh, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. That's, that's a great culture. Quote. Is, it is a great yeah. quote. From a great man. Yeah. And really did you know Peter? Thing. Did you ever I, get to meet him? I did meet him. In fact, we used to take our partners out to uh, Claremont yeah, to, to uh, be sit trained. at his yeah. feet. He was in his 90s, well into his 90s. Peter Drucker, one of the great kind of organizational behaviorists, one of the great minds in organizational development. Well, beyond that, he was really kind of the father of management, modern management. Yeah, modern management. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And you got to sit at his feet. What uh, – did you – did you know your entire life business is what you wanted to create? Not at all. How did you fall into being a chairman of so many companies? You know, uh, I, I actually went through BYU. Yeah. And I took the LSAT, what was called the GMAT, or the ATGSB yeah. at the time, which is today the called the GMAT. Okay. Uh, so you were took, thinking business school or law no, school? No, I was thinking law school, business school. I took the, uh, the GRE, which yeah, is yeah. the graduate records exam. Right. And I just I took all these tests and uh, and I happened to score really high on this one. So I said, well, maybe that's that's what I should do. do Even when I was there, you actually made a mistake in your intro. You yeah. said I graduated from Stanford Business School. I actually graduated from Harvard Business School. Oh, did you really? Yeah, Is which, that, that's an offense. Yeah, that would make a lot of people. But you were you teach classes at Stanford. I've taught at Stanford for twenty five years. Boy, it was that hard for you to go to Stanford after Harvard. Uh, no, okay. I, I love Stanford. And you fact, live near Stanford. Uh, well, we spent part of the year there. My, I, I sent five kids through Stanford. Did you? But I also sent three through Harvard Business School. Oh, so wow. We have divided loyalties. Yeah, you do. That's yeah. not bad. Yeah. It could be a bigger problem. Yeah. Um, so as you as you figured out you wanted to do business, did you learn – did you know trust? Was, was trust always an important idea for you? Like I wrote a book on relationships because relationships always mattered to me. Has trust always been a big part of your life? It has been a big part of my life, but I didn't realize that it would apply so profoundly to business issues. Uh, I – I struggled at the beginning to understand accounting and Mm. read balance sheets and figure out how to do deals. I started out in the real estate business, and the job there was to do deals, buy land, build buildings, lease them up. And so that was really the focus of my energy. And then I realized one day that really to build a great enterprise, you have to have these interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. that are that are that are built on trust. Yeah, and it's um, it's funny because I work with a lot of couples, and once that trust is dissolved, pretty much everything else falls. The understanding, the ability to work together, goal set, growth, development—it all just fades away. It is the foundation. It's very hard to rebuild. Yeah. And and did you – when you think about it, can you go back now 
that you have the ability of hindsight and think, oh, boy, if I could have this moment again, I probably would have implemented these tools oh, now. Yeah. yeah. But you can't live life no. in reverse. You got to so move forward. You have to move forward and you have to forgive. So everybody, you know, you'll only be betrayed if you trust. Right. If you never trust, you'll never be betrayed. That's true. So uh, I guess you won't grow either. But you really don't grow much and you don't get very much done. You have yeah. to do everything yourself. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to live in an organization, in a family, in a business organization, whatever, you have to learn to trust. You have to build these laws of trust and these guardrails that you sort of follow. I love that. Let's talk about some of the guardrails. Uh, the very first one, and you were you were alluding to it a minute ago, you got to start with integrity, right? So I guess you can't have more trust interpersonally or organizationally than you have integrity personally. And at the top of the organization. A top down. Yeah. It's one of these things that uh, really is driven by the leaders of the enterprise. Now, that could be the leaders of a team or whatever, mm. but the leader really sets the tone. There And so I think it is having this kind of personal integrity, this not compartmentalizing, but it's also delivering on promises. Yeah. You know, if you have integrity, you deliver on promises. You say you're going to do it, you do it. Exactly. There's no gap. Well, how can this be, Joel, if – because our two candidates, one of them is going to win the presidency and then yet they're not trusted by the majority, the great majority of the country, either one of them. Um. It won't be a top-down trust. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult. I think the only way to rebuild trust is to talk to us about things like economic growth, national security, and who they're going to bring into their cabinet. Who, who, who's okay. their management team going yeah. to be? Right now, they're not talking about any of that. They're blasting each other, mm-hmm. which actually further destroys trust, right. not in the person they're blasting, but in them. And so I think if they would really focus on those three elements that we all care about. Yeah. And and then bar, I guess can you borrow trust? So if they put in a cabinet that we all see as trustworthy, then we, we they're, they're running on other people's trust. Yeah. I think you can borrow a lot of things. And eventually they're going to have to rebuild trust mm-hmm. to lead the nation. But I think you can borrow trust just like you can borrow brands. When I'm yeah. starting a company, a lot of times you don't have much of a brand. Yeah. To start with. So you associate with, with others who others. have a great brand yeah. and, and you actually borrow some of what they've earned over the years. But And I guess the end result is you got to get results. So if I promise to get economic growth, then fairly quickly you need to see economic growth or we won't trust you. Yeah. And you need to stay in contact. with You need to communicate. People need to know what's going on. We're so used to spin now, oh. and, and the internet has yeah. really kind of uh, fueled that whole thing. So most of what you read on the internet, somebody said the other day that it's like a million page, really bad book, you know, <laughs> but we're so addicted true. to it. And oh, we, yeah. And so people learn not to trust. We learn to be wary about everything. Right. And so I think you have to, yeah, you have to stay in contact with people. So, so integrity is something personally I can do is I cannot promise something I know I can't deliver and I can under promise in order to make sure I am delivering and, and make sure it's legit. And if you're not delivering, if you realize you're going to meet a target, that's not the worst thing in the world as right. long as you're not hiding it. You know, a, a lot of people fail to deliver. Yeah. And so you can fail for reasons of character for reasons of not working at it or for just reasons of we live in a dynamic market. You were unable to perform. That last one will forgive. Yeah. And in many cases, that kind of failure is a preamble to success. Right, right. But if you learn, right? If you learn. 
But you got to keep talking to people. You have to let people know. Mm. So if you keep promising something and not deliver, people pretty soon will learn not to trust. Well, and we are a very forgiving society, it seems like. I mean, you can do a lot. And, I mean, we saw it with uh, even a President Clinton struggled a lot with certain parts of his life and yet was able to regain a lot of levels of trust. I mean, certain parts we may not have ever trusted him fully in. But we're a forgiving country. Just deliver. Yeah. And don't overcommit, which I guess is the politician's problem. Yeah. Well, we have to hope. We have to hope because we're going to have one or the other candidate who will be in the White House. And we have to hope that they'll understand how to rebuild trust. Yeah. Well, and boy, I hope they do. Another thing you brought up as we talk about the Internet being a big billion-page book that (laughs) is just nasty um, (laughs) is we have to invest in respect. It seems like we, we don't respect each other like we used to. Yeah, if you ever read some of these pages, uh, blogs and responses, uh-huh. it is outrageous oh. what people say when they're anonymous. Uh-huh. Yeah, when you're behind your closed door sitting there in your robe. Yeah, which says a lot of people don't have a fundamental, profound respect for other human beings mm. and points of view. And uh, I think it's very difficult to build a high-trust culture where you don't have the kind of respect yeah. for others. Well, and But what's so funny about what you're teaching us here, again, we're speaking with Joel Peterson, author of the book, The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great, is he's – you're also the chairman of JetBlue and other organizations, um, chairman of the board. These Some of these principles, Joel, seem so, um, so soft, but they, you're saying they produce hard results – as well. Yeah, I think they're very hard-edged. I yeah. think they feel soft because people have a misunderstanding of trust. They think it's this soft, mm-hmm. but, oh, I like you, therefore I yeah. trust you. Right. It's really you're looking at is somebody competent? Do they have high character? Yeah. And do they have the authority to deliver? Those three measures, if all three measures are not there, you shouldn't trust them. So trustworthiness then in your eyes is character, uh, I guess do what you say you're going to do. Exactly. Competency, the know-how. And authority, I guess, the the position, the place, the the right. Yeah, the, the ability to actually yeah. deliver. It's you know, you may have high character and high competence, but you don't really ha- you're not empowered right. to deliver. There's right. no point in trusting you. It's so interesting, huh? Because when we go to a doctor, if they're not board certified, they may not have the authority be, to be doing certain surgeries or whatever, or they may not be competent at it. Or they, or they may not be able to get into the hospital and have access to the to the, to the operating room. room. Yeah. So you're going to do it in the so back. They may be of their competent. Motor able, home. Yeah, you're going to do it in the in the back seat of the car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not a good idea. Not a good idea. Let's take a break. Um, we're learning a lot here with Joel C. Peterson in his book, "The Ten Laws of Trust: Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great." Um, wonderful insight from a true expert. Um, sit back, folks. Put on your thinking cap. We'll be back. More learning about trust. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in studio, Joel C. Peterson joins us. And uh, Joel is the current chairman of the board at JetBlue Airways, and he believes that nothing could be further from the truth. You do not have to be a shark to be successful in business. What you really need is trust. 
He wrote the book The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make Business a uh, to that make a business great. Joel, we appreciate you being here with us. It's great to be here, Matt. Five kids, huh? Seven kids. Seven. It's five daughters. Five daughters. That's yeah. what I heard. Two sons. Seven kids. And I mean, everything you're teaching would apply to the boardroom, apparently, but also just the the main line at business and also at home. Yeah, I think trust, you know, if your kids don't trust you, if your wife doesn't trust you, you're going to have a hard time having a oh. great home culture. No. Then, well, then you have to explain everything. Yeah. Low trust cultures pay a high tax. They pay a huge tax. Huge tax. So you talked about 10, uh, I guess you call them basically, they're, they're, they're like freeway. It's what keeps us in the freeway. Right. We want to we wanna make sure that we stay in the game. You've talked about integrity, investing in respect. Talk about uh, your your section on um, empowering everyone. Empowering seems like one of those words that we throw out there that's kind of, you know, fluffy again. It's I'm here to give you the power. How does trust create empowerment? Well, you, if you don't uh, trust somebody, you won't empower them. But you, yeah. you have to trust in increments. Yeah. So at some point, you have to give somebody a little bit of power. And what that means is you have to give them responsibility and accountability. They have to know what's being measured. Go. It feels like the opposite of trust when you say, here's what you've right. got to do. Here's the measurement. I'm going to check up on this. But it actually enhances trust. And then as they deliver on that, you can give out more trust and keep empowering people. So that's part of it, I guess, too, is you, you uh, empowerment with me. I've always thought of the M side of it. The within the power is already in my 16 year old to be able to accomplish life, to learn to drive. But I got to get in him enough to figure out how I can help him set the, the rules, the guidelines, the boundaries to succeed and, and eventually res- get his license. Exactly. How to do it responsibly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's that really is a leadership skill. Totally. Some aren't going to empower others. They they almost want to they want to you know, protect their, their power, keep the power instead of disseminating it, getting it out well, there. Well, they think it makes them more powerful if they hoard power. Mm. And it's just the opposite. Uh, Stan McChrystal, the four-star general who uh, headed yeah. Afghanistan, is on our board at JetBlue. And we were discussing one time empowering people because he found that he had all these Delta Force, Navy SEALs, yeah. Army Rangers, et cetera. And he found that he had to push power out as deep into the organization as possible. So they were making decisions in the field. Interesting. And, and he said he did it until it hurt. Until it hurt. Yeah. And I think that's really how great organizations develop high trust. You know, if they're accountable, if they deal with breaches, uh, they can continue to push power out into the organization. That seems like a great way to know if you are if you're trusting enough people is if it hurts. I mean, because it should be just as hurtful or potentially harmful that these Delta forces could act that and General McChrystal has to respond if they blow it. There, yeah. So it, cre- it demands this mutual trust that I know you're skilled enough, you've proven it, and I'll give you enough power to make me hang. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that – I mean that's a great way to say it, mutual trust. Yeah. And I think that's when trust is really its most powerful, when it is interdependent, when it's reciprocal. Yeah. And those are the most powerful partnerships. Those are the most powerful marriages. The most powerful businesses are where there's reciprocal trust. It's like people being belayed on a cliff. Right. 
You know, they basically are roped together. Yeah. Their survival depends on each other. When you develop that level of trust, you can do things that you could not even think of. Otherwise. And you're not saying you just give them that. You're saying you hold them accountable. Absolutely. You set some guidelines. You let them live up to a level. And then you can elevate the level and we elevate the responsibility. Exactly. I think if you have a project in a business, you have a budget, you have a timetable, you have specific deliverables, and then whoever is the champion of that budget then gets measured against those things. Yeah. And that is a measure of trust. It's not the opposite. You just say, go build a building right. uh, and I'll trust you to do it. it. That isn't trust. You've got to have these other measures. To have really- and, and I guess there is – then there's the accountability, but the accountability – just becomes a validation of trust, really. Like, yeah. yeah, you did it. It proves it up and then it allows you to then trust more the next time. Uh-huh. So you build on it. If you think about it, you're building it a layer at a time, a molecule at a time, a conversation at a time, a delivered project at a time, hmm. you're building trust with that party. Do you sense in corporate America, in the business world, is is trust going up? Is trust going down? Where are we in the trust factor of of our leaders. It seems like a lot of institutions we don't trust anymore. It seems like a lot of businesses we don't trust. Yeah, we've lost trust in a lot of people, in a lot of leaders, in a lot of businesses. Uh, but I don't think you can generalize. I yeah. think there's some that are just wonderful organizations that are very high trust. You could turn your life over to them. Right. I think uh, just as most doctors, you know, you'd say you could really – and we do trust our rights to doctors. Every once in a while, you'll find one that doesn't have a degree or is doing something outside of the bounds. But that that shouldn't tar everybody. Right. They get a lot of press. Writing a letter for Donald Trump that seemed a little (laughs) weird. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But it's like – I guess that's the key, isn't it? It's a a personal thing. Trust is – and I could have it with a company, right? So if a company harmed me, if a company did something, they didn't treat me right as a customer, I might not trust the company, but it's probably really an employee Probably I is. don't trust. Although the company, uh, if or it learns policy. about it, should step in. Yeah. You know, companies correct those things. You know, at JetBlue, we left people stranded on the tarmac. About, I remember that. Yeah, what everybody a great story. remembers that. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've tried to <laughs> make everybody forget. Right. But basically, David Neeleman, our founder and CEO, yeah. is one of the wonderful mm-hmm. human beings and great entrepreneurs in the airline industry. He basically came up with a bill of rights. For customers, it wasn't the government that came in and made him do it. He just he apologized, yeah, and he came up with this customer bill. But of Joel, wasn't that just a big PR move? Heck, no, no, that was I, I know uh, I know Neeleman's family, and no, that was probably his mother <laughs> or his father saying no, it was him. It may have been but, that their like, voices in you, his ear. That's right. But, you uh, treat it was people David. right. Yeah, how powerful. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess again, that's the top-down model. Yeah. Another point you bring up about trust is you got to keep everyone informed. I think this is vital. It's very hard to have a yeah. high trust organization if you're hiding things. Mm-hmm. So what that means to me is you have to tell good news and bad news. Yeah. You have to talk before, during, and after events. A lot of times people just deal with the event and they try to spackle yeah. over it. La, la, la. And keep that going. actually destroys trust. Yeah. So, so true. Yeah. If it's you'll so let true. people know that here's a bad thing that happened. Here's how we're dealing with it. By the way, here's how we dealt with it. Uh, that actually builds trust. So bad events are not necessarily trust-destroying. Well, and again, if I don't trust you, then I won't tell you. Yeah. So if you're not getting a lot of information, it might be that people around you don't trust you. Yeah, they know to hold their cards close to the vest. Interesting, because we, we also see that with the candidates as well. We're not, we don't seem to be getting the whole story of <laughs> – 
any part of their life, of any part of their privacy, of any part of their health, of any part of anything. Yeah. And right. I mean, I guess when you're you're in that position, it makes sense. If you don't trust the press, if you don't trust the right wing conspir- conspiracies, you probably aren't going to give as much. No. No, how do right. you how do we as um, a general like population trust a leader? Um, is there stuff we can do? to to help our ability to trust somebody enough to elect them? Well, uh, you know, I've often wondered. I've actually talked to several candidates in the past. Uh, yeah, they need to have you on board. Well, I, I've talked to them about, you know, not do, using all this negative messaging. Yeah. And the problem is they say that every single political consultant says that the negative messaging is all that scores points. Uh, Positive messaging or neutral messaging right. scores no points at all. So I think in this uh, media-driven sort of gossip hive yeah. we live in, bad news gets totally. the front page. Right. Because it's, it, it resonates. It, it takes care of our fear. Once yeah. we've got the fear taken care of, then we'll – Go to the hope. Well, it's it's very powerful. Fear is very powerful. Force yeah. and fear are extraordinarily oh. powerful in the short run, mm-hmm. as is reward. Right. And if you really want to start relying on things like duty and love, those are much show, they're much more powerful. Yeah. They're much stickier, but they take a lot of time to time. build up. But they also give you huge advantage long term. Yeah. So it, you, I guess as a leader, that's what everyone has to decide: is am I willing to to build the long term? you know, kind of not the softer skills, but really, they're really the more human skills. Yeah. And I think in our uh, financial markets, we're measured by quarterly results, yeah. which doesn't encourage people mm-hmm. to think about the long term. Right. It's interesting. In today's market, there are a lot of companies that are not going public. They're staying private. In fact, there's 148 really? what we call billion dollar companies that would normally right. would have gone public a long by time now, ago. And they're not out. doing it. They're just doing it. They're staying private. Part and, of that's due to regulations. Yeah, why? I guess they can then run it any way they need to without as much disclosure. Well, they don't have as much oversight, as much regulation, mm-hmm. as much government intervention. So consequently, they they feel more empowered and they can raise the capital privately. Huh. There's debt capital available. Yeah. and uh, But the problem with that is it actually exacerbates the income differential because uh, pension funds cannot invest in private. They have to that's invest right. in public share. So we're actually doing the opposite of what politicians we're, say they want to do. We're harming ourselves. Yeah, inadvertently. So I yeah. think not understanding second and third order consequences is another way to destroy trust. Mm-hmm. Inadvertently, yeah. maybe naively and or innocently, but it's every bit as trust destroying. Well, and it's because we hear so much about Wall Street, the corrupt Wall Street. And I mean, it might make sense why no one wants to go there. No yeah. one wants to play. And I've dealt with Wall Street for 44 years. Yeah. And, as uh, an executive. Too. As an executive. I borrowed money from them. I worked with them. And it, truly, greed does drive a whole lot of what happens there. But there's a lot of high character individuals where their word is their bond. Uh, really good professionals there. Mm. So I think we tend to tar people with a brush. Yeah. We have a media totally. kind of a look at things that uh, isn't very accurate. Well, and especially today, in just in the election culture, it's just it's anything. Can, yeah, we've got two months to get this thing done, and every, anyone will say anything, it seems like, right now. Well, and they've learned to talk in 140 characters. <laughs> so, that, so we're making policy in 140 characters. So true. So true. Well, we appreciate you coming to see us, Joel. Again, go check out the book, 10 Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds or that uh, Make a Business Great. Building the Bonds that Make a Business Great. 
Joel Peterson's his name, folks. You're not going to want to miss out on this one. A great example, I think, to all of us that you can you can build business, but you can also build trust as you do it. Joel, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Matt. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I hope you've uh, all had a great morning so far. But if not, we have something that might make it a little better. Have you ever met someone who just always seems to be happy? Why does it seem that there are people in this world that are happier than the rest of us? You might be asking, what did they have for breakfast? Well, guess what? Our producer, Leanna Tan, is going to share five ways happy people start their mornings. You know... I consider myself a nightlife person. I love going to dinners, parties, dances, concerts, and having late night talks. I love the nightlife. I've got to forget. But I was thinking about it, and there's something about the mornings that you just can't beat. There's something about opening your eyes in the morning and knowing that the sun is only going to get brighter from there. I read this article on PickTheBrain.com called Six Ways Happy People Start Their Mornings. Pretty interesting stuff. Here it is. It says that happy people, one, think of each day as a new beginning instead of reviewing the mistakes of yesterday. Morning, Truman. Morning, Spencer. Two, remind themselves of what things they have to look forward to and focus on those. You're taking us to Bermuda? Oh, boy. Three, make time to ease into the day and relax into their mornings so that their mind and body have a chance to fully awaken. Breathe. Yeah, you got that one down. Four, they spend a few moments with something beautiful, like birds or plants. By the time you reach the bottom, you're surrounded by flowers. Every day, new flowers open. Five, they put a positive focus to the day ahead, thinking of each day as an opportunity to do good and to make positive changes. Change. You got change. And number six, they give thanks in some way. Wow, that was pretty powerful. After reading this, I felt inspired. Say I'm a pretty happy person, and my mornings usually turn out pretty great. They're great. So I figured I'd share with you guys some ways that I start my mornings. You know, just to ensure that I'm giving you all the quality advice I can. So here are five tips to help you keep your mornings healthy and happy. What? Use the pretty morning blossom ringtone as your alarm instead of being jolted awake by those jarring bleats. <laughs> No one likes being woken up by ugly noises. Two! Wear your running shorts to bed so you have no excuse not to leave the house in the morning. Running, running, and running, running, and running. We all know it's hard enough getting yourself to exercise in the morning. If changing into your running shorts is one more step you have to do first thing, it kills any motivation you had to leave your bed in the first place. Three! Blast 90s music in the shower. Motivating? Uplifting? Plus, I'm sure your family or roommates will think it's a much more entertaining alternative to an alarm clock. After washing up, just stand in the shower under the hot water and contemplate your existence until someone knocks on the door. You know what they say. All the answers to life's deepest questions come when you're standing in the bathtub. Have a secret stash of Cheez-Its in your cupboard. 100% real cheese taste. Cheesy. Sounds bizarre, but you know you're secretly craving it. 
Since when did a bowl of cornflakes leave anyone feeling satisfied? I'm sorry, but I don't think granola bars or Pop-Tarts will ever bring you true happiness. Well, there you have it. Pick the Brain says, Happiness is often a matter of focus. It's about bringing into perspective all the things you have going well, the things we often neglect or fail to realize as true gifts. Happy people see the morning sun as a reminder to all those things we so easily forget, the things that make our lives so wonderful. So tomorrow, when you wake up in your running shorts to the sound of morning blossoms, don't dread the coming workday. Instead, remember you have so much to look forward to, like Britney Spears, a therapy session with yourself under hot water, and a large handful of delicious, cheesy, baked cracker snacks. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent.